This is the Illuminate Podcast, a Sandy Boy production. Each week on the Illuminate Podcast, the hosts will bring you insightful conversations and stories of people who are illuminating their own lives through their business, work, community, family, and world. Welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kristen Struer, and you're listening to episode six. On today's episode, we're talking with Dr. Mitch Besser, who is one of my personal heroes. I know he is also the hero of many others. Mitch is an OBGYN who has dedicated his career to the health needs of women, and in particular, women living with HIV. He was a practicing OBGYN at the height of the AIDS epidemic in the U.S., which led him to start an organization in Cape Town, South Africa called Mothers to Mothers. Mothers to Mothers is an incredible organization that helps pregnant women living with HIV prevent the transmission of HIV to their babies through a simple yet impactful peer-to-peer model. In today's episode, you will hear all about Mitch's journey, the founding of Mothers to Mothers and how it has saved lives in nine countries, and about Mitch's new venture called AgeWell. Mitch is so humble and has very profound insights to share. I really hope you enjoy learning from him as much as I did. Great, Mitch. I am just so honored to be able to talk with you today. Um, You are truly an inspiration for many people in the public health field and those that are trying to ensure that people have access to health needs and health services and going about it in the most efficient way, and you've created this model um, for the public health field that is um, used as an example in so many situations and is now extended far beyond the population that you started working with when you began the organization Mothers to Mothers. So thank you so much for spending the time with me today and being on our podcast, Illuminate. Well, Kristen, thank you very much for inviting me to be on. It's an honor. Um, to be able to talk with you and to, to share these stories. So thank you so much for your kind words and, and for this opportunity. Great. So Mitch, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? So you're an OBGYN by training. Um, how, did, how did you get there? How did, how did you end up in that career path? So I come, thanks Kristen for that question. I come from a medical family. My father was, my grandfather, excuse me, was a, was a general practitioner in Philadelphia my father is an obstetrician and gynecologist, and growing up, I watched the love he had for the, he had for the field, and um, in many respects, it motivated me to to pursue the same. As I went through through medical school, you know, you you get a chance to to dip into all these different professions, and I found that obstetrics was the one field where you're actually part of someone's life for reasons that are healthy. People come to obstetricians when when they want families, um, when they're pregnant, when they're delivering babies. And, and that being able to be part of that celebration of life and, uh, you know, the most important time in people's lives was just something that it was, was most exciting for me. So it was very easy to approach medicine through that lens of how do we help people have the families they want to have. I love that so much, and I, I'm a mother of one, and so I have a deep respect for this field and think it's so important that you're, you've approached your career this way and because it is, it is a defining moment in a woman's life, and I had some b- complications with the birth with my son, and I had a really caring, incredible team who looked beyond just the medical aspect of it, so it's... That's really, really great to hear and resonates certainly with me. Well, you know, and, and each of these experiences is so personal. And I was I was very fortunate. I did my training with midwives. So I, I, I first trained at Oxford with midwives and then practiced for most of my career in the United States in practices where midwives took the lead. And so I had an opportunity to, to you know, if, if you will, experience birthing as a natural event and learned how to support birthing as a natural event. And again, so much of what intrigues me is how do we promote 
safe, healthy birthing um, in ways which are normal, natural, and 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 yet safe. So it's I, I, I've I've been the lucky one here. I think being part of you know thousands and thousands of pregnancies and deliveries, you know it's it's that's it's been a gift to me. Amazing. Now you went to Harvard Medical School. I went to Harvard Medical School. And from there, went uh, to San Diego for my residency training in obstetrics and gynecology. Um, while at medical school, I had a commitment to the U.S. Public Health Service. They put me through medical school. And when I finished my residency training, um, I had an opportunity to go to what was described as an underserved area, which took me to the Federated States of Micronesia in the Pacific, in the Pacific Ocean um, near Guam. This was a small island called Truk, or now Chuk. Um, where I was the first obstetrician that had ever come to that island. So had a unique experience for th- three years um, in on the island of Chuuk, building health systems and trying to develop programs for women who were pregnant in, in this very out-of-the-way setting. It was, you know, in many respects, a, a defining moment for me in, in my view of clinical practice as it ties into public health. Wow. So the first OBGYN on the island... What does that look like? <laughs> um, again, I had the, for- the good fortune of being able to work with midwives, but it looks like how do you set up health systems to promote the needs of women who are having babies? How do you, you know, address the challenges they might face? How do you help them through this process of birthing in the safest way possible, respectful of the culture, and yet trying to address these critical needs that could contribute both to the mother and the baby's well-being? So, you know, so much, so often we all move into existing systems and try and adjust them a bit. I had the good fortune of going into a system that didn't exist and building a system um, from the ground up. And it's an exciting time to be able to, you know, kind of create that foundation of process and then and do the training around it so that there are, you know, records keeping, service provision, um, measuring what you're doing in ways that are meaningful and sustainable. I had the good fortune of going back to truck, oh, I think 25 years after I left and found happily that they were using much of the same, you know, the same manuals and the same paperwork that we had put in place in the mid, uh, the mid eighties. So that, um, it, you know, it's a, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. And I just, I, I just loved it. Oh, that's incredible. As, as somebody who works in the health system strengthening space, I can't even, Imagine what it would be like to have really a blank slate and to establish those processes and ways in which you can really build up a system to best support the people it's serving. So what a, an incredible opportunity. Truly once in a lifetime. Absolutely once in a lifetime. Reese. Wow. And the fact that they're still using your trainings and manuals, I mean, that is huge and such a legacy that you've created there. So then, Mitch, after Micronesia, then where did you go? Well, after Micronesia, I, did, I guess I did a quick lap around the United States. I went back uh, to Boston and was on the faculty at Harvard um, doing, you know, just basic clinical obstetrics and gynecology in a, in a private practice group. And, and that was gratifying. But, you know, I, I guess I think I'm better. I, I, I think I'm happier, shall we say, serving populations rather than individual people people. And so that, you know, the day-to-day routines of practicing medicine are so important. And when I get sick, I want a doctor who will take care of me individually. But I like to look at big problems and, and, and figure out how do, you, how do you solve big problems, if you will, in the, in, the, in the realm of medicine and public health. So I left Boston and went back to San Diego and joined a practice of obstetricians and midwives who were trying to provide access to care for poor women, mostly Mexican, coming across the border, who really weren't able to access services from private practitioners in the community. And it was a group called OBGYN Consultants. And there were three of us initially, three doctors initially, and about 10 midwives who who worked through the community clinics across San Diego to deliver prenatal care to mothers who just were looking for someone who could help them have safe safe pregnancies. But we also opened up a birth center, a freestanding birth center, where these same mothers who wouldn't necessarily have access to hospital services because they didn't have insurance could come and have safe births. And again, these were births supervised by 
five midwives and the birth center was across the street from a major teaching hospital. But this, this, this place called the birthplace in the 1980s was the largest freestanding birth center in America. And we were delivering about a thousand babies um, a year in that, that birth center. And it became a center where women could come and have safe, healthy, and, and quite natural births. Um, and it was, it was wonderful to see how do you take a small idea and take it to scale? How do you, you know, we were delivering 2,500 women a year, which is an enormous number. And it was all done in t teamworks with doctors and midwives and case managers and health educators and social workers and nutritionists, but really looking to solve all of the issues that a pregnant woman and her family would face. And it became in many respects respects the foundation for everything I've done since this work in San Diego. And I did it for a decade and immensely gratifying. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, that is, that's the ideal situation where you have essentially this interdisciplinary support network around you when you're, when you're having your child, um, that, that probably lays such a beautiful foundation for, the rest of the life of this child, because um, the mother was so supported. And as somebody who has had, um, who did need some medical intervention, the fact that the center was across the street from a teaching hospital is uh, amazing, because then you have access to medical services, which are often needed um, when somebody is in labor or giving birth. That's right. And, and, and again, it's always that challenge between trying to balance the over-medicalization of what is fundamentally a natural process, but also you know, to promote you know, the healthy birthing practices that in some cultures don't you know, have doctors intervening and, um, and trying to find that delicate balance between the two. So that neither the mother nor the baby is ever really at risk. And I think that you know, we, we were able to do that and, um, and very happily for, for so many people over the course of the of the decade we did it in parallel um i became an hiv doctor at the same time one of my partners in this medical group OBGYN consultants um had been providing service to pregnant mothers living with hiv at the university hospital ucsd medical center um he subsequently became ill and asked me to take over the clinic while he was away and um, he never came back. He was never able to come back to that clinic. And so in some respects, I inherited it from him. And starting in 1991, just as we started to really face the, the dilemma of how do you care for pregnant women who are living with HIV, um, we were involved in research, treatment research, and looking for remedies that would reduce mother-to-child transmission. And happily, in 1994, we identified a drug, AZT, that would reduce mother-to-child transmission by two-thirds. It was a, a drug you give to the mother during the pregnancy and during delivery, and you could reduce dramatically the number of babies infected with this virus. Over the course of that decade, more and more medicines became available and more and more protocols were developed that even further reduced mother-to-child transmission. So over the course of the last five years that I was in San Diego, there wasn't a single baby born to our program with HIV. And the inspiration, when you, when you find something that's possible, you know, we lived with the dread in the early part of the decade of mothers giving birth to babies with very little we could do, and then suddenly you can do everything. And suddenly you can almost guarantee a mother that her child could be born free of the infection. And it inspired us. It inspired me to think, what more can we do and by the end of the 90s, my eyes turned to South Africa. Okay. Yes. And this is how I know you or how I followed your work. And just, I mean, I can't get over the how incredible um, that there were no babies born HIV positive once that drug um, was introduced. I mean, how remarkable. And and again, it it, it you know this 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 sudden recognition that there are no babies being born with HIV opens the door to possibilities. What would it take to do that at scale? What would it take to do that in more challenging environments than San Diego? How do you build systems around that? And you know, for me, it took me back to my days in Micronesia. It took me back 
to the things that I had learned in San Diego and building programs and taking them to scale. And um, very happily, I was offered an opportunity at the University of Cape Town to come there, join the faculty and build their HIV programs for pregnant women. Okay, tell me more about this. So this takes us to 1999 when we're beginning to appreciate the epidemic in an African context. Very different than the epidemic in an American context. In the African context, it was for the most part an infection between men and women. It was in many respects transmitted by men and women, both who had many sexual partners and weren't by any measure having safer sex. And it was in some respects untreatable. Mm -hmm. There were no medicines and often there were no tests. So that when I got to Cape Town in 1999, we didn't actually have the capacity the test for HIV in the women coming in for antenatal care. Wow. So you're really flying blind. By 2000, we started to get tests, but there was still then no treatment. So you, you could identify people living with HIV, but there was still no medical intervention to prevent mother-to-child transmission. So in many respects, you were consoling people about their fate. And, you know, and, and we talk about women coming to the clinic and finding out they're pregnant and imagine this, finding out you're pregnant and being delighted and then finding out a short time later that you're HIV positive. And all you know is that your baby is going to be infected and will likely die and that you're infected and will likely die. And because of the stigma associated with HIV, there's no one you can tell. And that was the situation on the ground in Cape Town and in South Africa and across you know, the African continent where so many people were infected. We're talking about a country, South Africa, where... 30% of the mothers were living with HIV. I mean, the prevalence was beyond belief that almost one in three mothers were HIV positive, and yet there still wasn't treatment available in, you know, in the year 2000. Wow, one in three mothers. Mm-hmm. Wow, and, and then, it, yeah, it certainly was, it was a death sentence. At that time, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you know in, in living there and moving there, you know, you became aware of the funerals every weekend and the, you know, and, the, and the, the, the towns where you could see people walking on the streets with all the signs of advanced HIV. And you'd see mothers coming in uh, for prenatal care who were close to death and there was nothing you could do. And that's where we started from. So, again, it's, you know, when, when, you're, when you're kind of at ground zero in an, in, in an epidemic, in an emergency you know, what are the steps you take? How do you build systems that can drive change and meet the needs of people who are, again, no different than the states, just trying to have families? You know, it's not complicated. They want to have babies. They want to have families. They want to live a secure life. And how do you bring that back to them in a way which is um, accessible? So how do you how do you build systems that drive change? What did what did you take and build there? What you know, having had the good fortune of building a program in Micronesia and, you know, looking to deliver care in a comprehensive interdisciplinary way in San Diego, I tried to pull all those things together and got it terribly, terribly wrong. <laughs> because, because the truth is the resources that we had access to in the States just weren't available in Africa. You know, you couldn't engage a caseworker and a social worker and a health educator and a nutritionist to consult on every pregnant woman living with HIV. You didn't have the resources. They're, they're just, mm-hmm. weren't, you know, if there was a social worker, there was one for the entire hospital. If there was a nutritionist, there may have been one for the entire hospital. So you couldn't get dedicated services to guide people in terms of how to take care of themselves in the best way. And I was poorly equipped to do this because I'm, I'm a man. I spoke English. I wasn't of the culture. I'm fortunately not living with HIV. So I didn't have any reference points to connect me with the people for whom I'm trying to provide care. Wow. And so yeah. while they're with the best intentions, the question becomes, how do you bridge that divide? How do you reach people who have s- such dramatic needs when you, in some respects, occupy a different space? And this is where Mothers to Mothers came from. Mothers to Mothers was built on the premise that people who've had an experience are best able to provide education, support, counsel to people who are similarly affected. And what we did was we brought 
our patients who had successfully delivered their babies back to the clinic and employed them as what we call mentor mothers. And these mothers who had had their babies were trained and then paid to be part of the healthcare team. And in doing that, they could essentially translate what I needed mothers to know to these pregnant women in ways which were most meaningful. They spoke the language, they understood the culture, they understood what was in the realm of possible, as opposed to my <laughs> realm of wishfulness. Um, they were able to answer questions about feeding the baby, taking medicine, and most importantly, how to disclose their status to family members, to partners, how to overcome the stigma, how to be less fearful of what was often the ostracism that occurred around these, these HIV declarations. And so that what had been a doctor-nurse team, our interdisciplinary team included a mentor mother. And that mentor mother, in many respects, fulfilled the, the responsibilities that in San Diego were, were occupied by case managers and social workers and nutritionists and health educators, all kind of rolled up into this mentor mother. And it was extraordinary to see, you know, this double dividend because the mentor mothers became, they were employed, so they had incomes, they were empowered, they had positions of responsibility in the health system, so their lives changed. And of course, the patients got the benefit of, of a kind of learning that they wouldn't have otherwise had. Incredible. So the mothers are now part of the health system and influencing the health system. Exactly. And and again, such a simple idea um, to just kind of layer on someone who has all the requisite knowledge and experience to communicate with someone who's similarly affected. And so that mother, remember we imagine that mother who comes to the clinic and finds out she's pregnant is delighted and then is horrified to find out she's HIV positive. We can now guide her into a room where there's a mentor mother and that mentor mother can bring her in and say, don't worry, CC, it'll be okay. We have medicines that will prevent you from infecting your a child. We now have medicines that will keep you healthy and alive. And we can help you explain to family members, to your community, that living with HIV is very much in the realm of possible. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to that peer-to-peer model. I think in so many cases in the health space, we see it in, in the work that we do with um, people with intellectual disabilities by, you know, one, bringing family members together who have children that have intellectual disabilities and helping them figure out how, what networks exist for them, what they've done, learning from each other. And then similarly, we also do it in a, in a similar kind of advocacy way where we have people with intellectual disabilities serve as peer leaders and mentors for others with intellectual disabilities and helping equip them with tools to um, teach others. And that's a really powerful model because sometimes you're not going to want to listen to your doctor telling you, well, you need to eat this and you need to do this. And, um, but you will listen to that peer who's, who's trying to guide you through the process. Somebody who's been there or is, is facing the similar stigma and barriers that you're facing. Absolutely. So well put. And the truth is, you know, we, me in the doctor field, we believe that, you know, by virtue of our position, People listen to us and act on the guidance we give them. It's it's a myth. You know, people listen. They, they do listen, but I, I'm not convinced they actually act on everything we tell them to do. Um, and yet, they do, I think, listen to peers. And especially when those peers are living in the same community, when those peers share a, a lifestyle. So, you know, I, I think to other places where this peer-to-peer relationship is so important support groups. You know, we have support groups for people living with cancer. We have support groups for people. AA is 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 was one of the foundational. Um, you know, I learned from about AA and applied many of those tenets to a program like Mothers to Mothers. Um, just the formation of communities where people who share similar neighborhoods, you know, background histories come together and reduce loneliness and isolation. Isolation, it's so important, this, these peer connections and face-to-face peer connections, not, not online, but, you know, people, you know, with people. And, um, you know, I think that as we 
you know, as you as you experience life and look around, you see more of that. If you if you if you're looking for it. I want to comment on one thing that you said that I really appreciated when you were talking about how you built Mothers to Mothers and you said, you know, I'm not HIV positive, I'm a man, I'm not from the same culture. I mean, I think that's a really important awareness about building something and recognizing that in order to be successful, you have to really make sure that the people who are facing the challenges are part of the solution um, and so just thank you for sharing that and for being so honest about that. And, and that's so important is, you know, I think in general, anybody doing any sort of health system strengthening work, but also just if you're building a solution for a community that having that awareness, if you're not um, of the community or facing the challenge, that that's really important. Absolutely. A hundred percent that you need to include the community in your planning. And again, the, the field of medicine, doctors aren't necessarily inclined to think in that context. Um, in, a, in a private practice setting, it's harder. But in the realm of public health, you know, if you're not including that community in your deliberations, um, you are, are likely to make systematic errors that undermine what could be an otherwise very effective program. Simple things, simple things, but just, you know, just... Consult, consult, consult. So how did the health system react when you suggested that these mothers become part of the system and, and um, are integrated in? I mean, how did, how did that work? What, what happened? Well, you know, initially, you know, most systems are resistant to change. Um, and so there's a level of diplomacy. There's a, you know, the notion of, you know, don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. You know, how do you start something? Fortunately, in South Africa in 2000, we were dealing with such an emergency that um, there was an openness to new interventions and to innovation in ways that perhaps wouldn't be possible today because things are more established. But in a crisis, people just look for some form of action that might be um, that might address the need, and we were we were there then. But um, no, there's resistance. You try something, people push back. You know, you start something, they shut you down. You start it again, they shut you down. Um, you ask permission, they say no. You do it anyhow, they say okay. Then um, it was it was a juggling act, as so many things are, and you know, so much of what happens comes down to timing and luck. It really does. You know, I think we tend to take credit for being more clever than we really are. Sometimes it's just timing and luck and being there at the right time in the right place. And the situation is just ripe for change. And there you are. And um, we were there. We were there. And um, we're very fortunate that we worked with leaders in the hospitals, worked with leaders at the level of provincial health and national health that were receptive, sufficiently receptive that we could we could run this run this across South Africa, and so by the time we, you know, we're five to six years old, we were doing this in about 400 clinic sites across the country, and by 10 years in, we were reaching 20% of the HIV positive pregnant women in the world. So you know we had, you know, created, you know, established a program for South Africa that we then took to Lesotho and to Kenya and to Rwanda and Zen. Zambia, um, Malawi, now in Mozambique, soon opening in Angola, Ghana, um, Tanzania, so that, you know, we were able to take this model to scale and to reach an enormous number of people because we were able to demonstrate that this very simple intervention could dramatically reduce mother-to-child transmission. In our program now, among the mothers who, who come to care and receive support from a and her mother, the mother to child HIV transmission rates are about 1.6%. That means 98% of mothers who are HIV positive have babies that are negative. 98% incredible from, from zero, basically. Well, you know, without treatment and without any kind of intervention, uh, the baseline transmission rate runs 40%. That's 40% of 40% of babies would be positive in a mother who doesn't get care and breastfeeds her child. 
And when we're able to provide support for the mother getting tested, getting treatment, taking her treatment the right way, feeding her baby the right way, that transmission rate goes down to 1.6%, which is essentially what it is in the, in, in the UK and Europe and the US. So that we've been able to work with health systems. This isn't just us. It's the robust health system in these African countries that have now scaled up to deliver a comprehensive service that, that, that drives these kinds of outcomes. Wow. And so it's now in eight countries, changing the lives of families, right? Mothers, children. Right. It's soon to be in, soon to be soon to be in ten countries. And in in the services we, we initially provided, which were very much centric on mother to child transmission. We've now expanded beyond that to ensure that babies in their first years are getting early child development support, that adolescent girls and young women are growing up to appreciate how they cannot become infected with HIV so that they don't have to face the challenges of living with HIV and not transmitting it to their babies. So a lot of work with adolescent girls and, 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 and then trying to bring in the fathers and the men so that they can be you know, part of the solution. So that um, so much of what's important in HIV is to, you know, is to get the right behaviors. And it's so important that we engage men. So we're doing more with men now. So it's really becoming a, a more comprehensive service. It's both in the facilities, the healthcare facilities, and reaches into the communities where people live and trying to raise community awareness. But it's become a much more comprehensive approach to this very singular issue of mothers and babies and how can we help promote their best best interests. I love that. And amazing that you're bringing in the fathers and the men. And I'm so happy to hear that that is the, the direction in which the work is going now. And I, I've seen it transform communities when the men are involved and in taking responsibility and having leadership roles. And sometimes, you know, this is very much not, it may not be what the culture has promoted, that that being their role, but it is truly transformational if they're involved in that way. And, you know, and and it's and sometimes the changes are so, so small, so incremental, that you just have to trust that over time, those incremental changes will, you know, eventually take you to where you want to be. But it's about, you know, those small steps on this long journey that eventually gets you there. And and we've been very fortunate watching over the last nearly 20 years, a dramatic shift that people now living with HIV can access medicine that will keep them alive as long as someone who's HIV negative. And the medicines are inexpensive and they're now available in health centers and in communities. And I think there are 24 million people on medicine now amongst the 37 million in the world living with HIV. But it's a whole different landscape than it was 20 years ago. And it's, it's extraordinary to be involved in healthcare to see that kind of dramatic change in a generation. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm sure you have many stories that, about your work. Is there one story that you'd like to share about something that was really transformational or somebody who really touched your well, life? It, there's one mothers to mothers story. Um, and this was early in our in our history in Cape Town, where one of the mothers who was pregnant wanted to go back and disclose to her family members that she was living with HIV, and she was terrified. She was terrified about their reaction, and so she asked one of our mentor mothers to go home with her. And so the mentor mother went home with the patient, and there in the household was the mother and the father and three siblings. And she sat down with them and said, you know, I, this is very hard for me. I need to tell you that I'm living with HIV. And after she fit, one of her sisters stood up and said, I've not been able to tell you, but I too am living with HIV. And the family was shocked. But then the other sister stood up and said the same thing, that she too was living with HIV. And then the brother stood up and said the same. So that, you know, this woman who in her household felt isolated because she was living with HIV was actually part of a household in which essentially everyone but the parents were infected. And in sharing it, they were able to bring everybody together and, and to support one another going forward, as opposed to each of them being isolated with this diagnosis that they were afraid to, to share. And so, you know, in some respects, that's the power of support and sharing and, and building these bridges. And 
um, what I think Mothers to Mothers has been able to contribute to is to to do this within households. And when you when these households coalesce into a community, you've done it within a community. And so you're changing perspectives, you're changing attitudes, you're changing practices. And and this is these are the hallmarks of public health: knowledge, attitudes, and practices. Yeah. Wow. It took takes one person to be an advocate and then get the support of others. Have you ever seen this video that it's kind of a goofy video of this concert and there's a man at the, at the concert that just starts dancing crazy. And then the second person joins in and then there's a whole crowd of people that join in. And it sometimes just takes that one person to, you know, live audaciously or be willing to be vulnerable and to put themselves out there to then get everybody to share their story and to create that network of support. That's right. And that that first person is so brave. It's so brave to put it out there and um, and often doesn't get celebrated. And, you know, we look at our mentor mothers as those brave people. We work for them. It's, you know, one of the one of the tenets of mothers to mothers is that the the mentor mothers are in charge and we work for them to support them in their efforts to address this address this epidemic and um right now i think we have 1500 mentor mothers working for us um across africa and we are doing our very best to support them in in their efforts now mitch you since mothers to mother mothers have embarked in another venture with a similar peer-to-peer type model called AgeWell. Could you just share a little bit about that and your vision for your work now? So, you know, um, you know, the the old story is when you have a good hammer, everything looks like a nail. We feel like there's this peer-to-peer support system is a really good hammer. And the question becomes where else could it be applied? Where else, you know, is there another public health challenge that we're trying to address that, that to which would be applicable. And, you know, if there are 37 million people living with HIV, there are almost 2 billion older people in this world. And as the population ages, we're testing our societies in terms of how do you create the supports that older people need um, to live fulfilling lives. So many older people are lonely and isolated and living without their partners living without ready access to family members who may be geographically distant. Um, and the quality of life for older people can be so poor and it's terrible to see. I mean, you know, feel empathy, feel compassion for these folks who just are in their last years completely disconnected and then they become sick and they enter hospitals and then they're institutionalized and they're far away from everything familiar to them. Um, so I've, I've reached that age. I'm a senior I'm a senior citizen myself, and I'm looking to build systems that would support me as I grow older. And how do I stay connected to a community? So AgeWell is a pivot on the Mothers to Mothers program, where what we've done is we've looked to identify able older adults to provide peer support and companionship to less able older adults living at home. And the notion is that within neighborhoods, to identify older adults that we can employ and train as AgeWell companions, and that they then go and visit people who are homebound to reduce isolation, to provide friendship and companionship, and to just give folks a connection that might even bring them out of their homes and re-engage them in the communities in which they live. So the initial premise is how do we improve the quality of life of older adults in ways which are sustainable and scalable um, in the context of the communities in which we live? The second piece is that many older adults get ill, get sick, but do so incrementally. And that there are opportunities to identify people getting who are having health problems that if addressed early can keep people out of emergency rooms and out of hospital beds and keep them in their homes longer. So we developed a technology, a smartphone-based technology that was really a series of questions and observations that our AgeWell companions could act on. And so that when the AgeWell companions visit people in their homes just to be friends, they can also look to see if there's food in the refrigerator or if there are trip hazards on the floor or if the person they're visiting is showing signs of sickness, they're confused or they don't know how to take their medicines. And then through these questions and observations, we we can trigger referrals to social workers or to 
primary care providers or to people who can come in and do home repairs that will essentially keep people from having accidents, ensure they can get food, learn how to take their medicines properly or, or get the diagnostics and care they need, again, to keep them at home. And so AgeWell was started six years ago, five years ago, um, with an eye towards improving the well-being and health of older adults. And, um, and we have had programs. Our first programs were run in South Africa in two communities there. We've got programs in the United States and then in Ireland. And again, we're looking to find ways to, as we did with Mothers to Mothers, to embed this in the services that are currently being offered to older adults and then to take it to scale. I'm very hopeful that this, again, like Mothers to Mothers, becomes part of the, the care systems that we are able to provide to people at a public health on a public health level. I love so many pieces of this. And certainly we're by nature as humans, we need that connection for our well-being. And so, and it is so interesting. I mean, I think about in my my parents' generation, everybody still lived close, right? And in similar neighborhoods, but people are moving mm -hmm. now and we have access to so many different areas. So you may not be close to your aging parents anymore. Um, and so that's, I mean, that's a real thing that I, that I certainly think about. I don't live in the same city as my parents do. And so what kind of supports could exist? And that's, that's amazing. Now the age well, uh, mentors are, are they typically only people that are, in the aging category, or do you also have companions that are younger? So again, it's a good question. And we're looking to do a couple things. One is we believe that as with Mothers to Mothers, there's this peer-to-peer -peer sharing of experience that's important. Now, there are wonderful programs for older adults that, um, that where college students are encouraged to spend time with older adults or any, really anybody. But... This is really about older adults sharing common experiences. And, you know, in Limerick, Ireland, where we where we did this first in Ireland, you know, there are older adults who are looking for things that are purposeful for them in their retirement. They're looking for not necessarily paying jobs, but something to which they can commit themselves, something meaningful. And so being an age well companion, in some respects, energizes them to be able to go and do something meaningful with their days. The care recipient, the older adults, welcomes someone who shares a similar history, a similar neighborhood, a similar culture and language. So it's, again, an older adult sharing stories with a, another older adult. Family members like you would benefit knowing that a loved one is, is being met by someone who will add some spark to their day, some light to a day which might be fairly dark. And finally, the health system has an agent, an eyes and ears person in the community who can identify people before they get critically ill. So that in many respects, it's a program that has four dividends, health system, care recipient, care provider, and That's family amazing. member. amazing. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're almost equipping them as community health workers by doing the intake on your, for, on your right. technology. And that's, I mean, that's huge. And it can make such, such changes. That's right. You know, so I, a funny anecdotal story. So in high school, I was the Monday night bingo caller for four years at the local nursing home. And it is really one of my most fondest life memories. I, I loved the time I spent there. Um, I made incredible friendships. I learned so much from the people that were there in their, their just beautiful life stories. Um, so I would love to be part of age. Well, if, if you ever move into my community, well, I think what we'll do is we'll start to set up bingo Perfect. and you can call bingo numbers, but I, but it's, you know, people crave three dimensional face to face encounters. And, you know, and again, this is me as an older person talking, I think too often now we're replacing that with, you know, with two dimensional encounters, talking through a screen, talking over a telephone, texting, and how do we, you know, we're social creatures, as you said a moment ago, how do we bring people together, you know, face to face so that they can breathe the same air, enjoy the same experiences and, and just connect. And, um, you know, I think that this is the power of age well in many respects. And um, again, I'm hopeful that we'll get sufficient traction that we can continue to grow this model of care. Yeah, I love how you put that, uh, the three dimensional connection so important especially 
in this day and age. That's a, that's well put. Mitch, I am so inspired by your career and what you have accomplished and the models that you've built and the systems that you've changed and influenced. And I I have so many more questions for you. I know we're approaching the end of our time together. So maybe I can just ask you a couple of our end of the podcast questions just to leave our listeners with a few more pieces of wisdom and uh, advice and information from you and your incredible career. So the first uh, question is, you know, you, you have demonstrated what it means to illuminate in your life and in your communities that you've served. Who is somebody that you think illuminates in their life and inspires you? Well, I, first, you're, you're very, you know, I just did what I did. Um, there, I, I, I want to be honest, there was never... I never tried to to illuminate. I just tried to do. And the things that I've tried to do over the course of years are things that inspired me. And I've never, for many years, felt like I worked. Um, they, it never felt like jobs. These were always just challenges. And there's a, a creativity. I'm a, I'm a left brain person. And so, you know, I suffer from not having right brain creativity. But these public health programs you know, are a creative expression of my love of people and medicine. But um, I, I feel like I'm the one who's won all the way through by just having the good fortune to do these things. The two people who've, two people, one is Linda Reed and the other is Paul Abrams. And there's, you know, for people who are listening to the podcast, there's, there's really nothing to look up. These are people who were coaches for me at various stages of my career who helped guide me in terms of how to think and, and how to to manage people around me in ways which are supportive. But um, I have so benefited in my later adult years from the kind of coaching provided by these two people, Linda Reed and Paul Abrams, and um, they have helped me reshape my life. Wow. So they were mentors along your career. They were coaches. Um, you know, they, you know they, they would go by the title perhaps of an executive coach, but there's a kind of action-oriented kind of therapy that isn't psychotherapy as much as it's management and professional and behavioral therapy. I'm not even sure what the title of it is, but you know, sometimes the disconnect is between the things you want to do and how you do them. And if you, you can connect that, if you can be more effective in overcoming the barriers that prevent you from being successful, you're actually more successful. And these two folks changed my life. Amazing. And I think that's good advice in general that sometimes you do face barriers in what you are trying to achieve and that it can it can sometimes take an external force to help you dig up what you have inside to overcome those and to take the next step and to reach the next level. So I love that that those are the two people that that you feel like have illuminated in their lives and in yours. Absolutely. Okay, so you must be well read. Would love to hear if you have, if you could give a, a one book recommendation, what would it oh, be? It, this one sits next to my desk all the time. It's called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Daniel Kahneman um, is a Nobel laureate, an economist, um, and he wrote a book. It's 34 chapters, each 10 pages, and I read it every year. I love that. Is there a time of year you read it? No, it doesn't matter, but I only read one chapter a day because... There's so much in that chapter that you read it and you just kind of, it's its like eating something that's delicious slowly. There are the ideas, the concepts, and oh, this is a delicious book. And so because you're only reading 10 pages a day, it's accessible. You know, you don't have to commit to reading a 340-page book. You just have to read, commit to reading a 10-page chapter. I like that. And then you just digest that for the day. That's it. That's great. So this podcast was born initially out of a a supper club. And so we, the the hosts of the show, we love food. So we are asking all of our guests to either share a recipe with our listeners or their favorite dish or even, you know, dining experience uh, as as part of this. Fantastic. Well, my wife doesn't chime me, but she laughs that I spent most of my time thinking about food when I'm not thinking about public health. So here it comes. This is a simple roast chicken. Um, you stuff, first you, you you put olive oil all over the outside of the chicken, and then you put inside the cavity 
rosemary, and half a lemon. As you put the lemon inside, give it a good squeeze so that juice comes out. Then you cover the skin of the chicken with cracked pepper and paprika. And the trick is to make sure you get that pepper in all the creases under the wings and the legs, but as much of the body as you can cover with a heavy dose of a good cracked pepper. Now you put the chicken those big portobello mushrooms, the really big ones, so that as the chicken cooks and the juice from the lemon and the fat drip, they'll drip into that those portobello mushrooms. Also, underneath the chicken, you put slice you put sliced sweet potatoes and carrots, and then maybe a good cup of red wine inside the cavity, and then another cup of red wine, you know, on the on the bottom, so that everything cooks together, and that's dinner. Okay, that sounds delicious. I'm definitely going to add that to my grocery list for next week. It is reminiscent of the Ina Gardens, her engagement chicken, but you have a few more elements in there that that I'm going to need to try. Have fun with it. Yeah, send me a note. Let me know what you think. I will. And and I must I must also say that as a public health person myself, I certainly am equal in spending the, the time when I'm not thinking about public health, about food. So um, that's very relatable for me. Oh, and then the other bit is if you want to take cloves of garlic and stick those in those portobello mushrooms before you put the chicken on top. So the, the benefit of that is as things cook, you get that wonderful smell of chicken and garlic filling the house. That sounds amazing. Now, are you the cook in your family or is your wife? Oh, we all cook. No, we, we oh, all, all cook. cook. Okay. Cook. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, we that's all cook. That's how it is in our, in our house as well. Yeah. Okay. And the last question for you, Mitch, is what is your message for the world? Learn to be mindful and take time to be kind. Thank you, Mitch, for joining us today. And thank you for the light you've brought to so many communities through Mothers to Mothers and AgeWell. And thank you for the reminder of the power of peers and companionship. I know I absolutely need that in my life. To learn more about Mothers to Mothers, go to www.m2m.org. And if you want to hear more of the Illuminate Podcast episodes, go to theilluminatepodcast.com or you can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to have you every week. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week for more Illuminating. Have a wonderful week.